from the feature staff at the Columbus Dispatch. This is Life in the 614. Hi, and welcome to Life in the 614, the official lifestyle podcast of the Features Department at the Columbus Dispatch, coming to you every Thursday. If it sounds like fun, we'll be talking about it. Hi, I'm Nancy Gilson, a freelance writer for the Columbus Dispatch. Today we're talking with Richard Cordray, the author of the new book, Watchdog. We in Ohio know Richard Cordray as a former state treasurer and attorney general and unsuccessful candidate for governor. But he is best known nationally as the often besieged founding director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, CFPB, an independent U.S. agency charged to protect consumers and the financial marketplace from fraud and abuse. The Bureau was authorized by Congress as part of the Dodd-Frank bill passed in the wake of the Great Recession. Senator and presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren conceived of the Bureau, but during Barack Obama's presidency, she was deemed too controversial to be confirmed as director by a Republican-controlled Senate. Thus, Obama tapped Cordray and the CFPB began operating in 2011. The Bureau writes and enforces rules for financial institutions, examines bank and non-bank financial institutions, monitors markets, and accepts and responds to consumer complaints. Under Cordray's leadership, the main priorities of the Bureau had to do with mortgages, credit cards, and student loans. Cordray left the Bureau in 2017 during the Trump administration. He wasn't fired, but clearly would not have been kept on as director. In 2018, he lost the race for governor of Ohio. He has written a book about the founding and the formative years of the CFPB titled Watchdog, How Protecting Consumers Can Save Our Families, Our Economy, and Our Democracy. The book, with a foreword by Elizabeth Warren, will be published March 2nd. Cordray will appear at 7 p.m. February 27th at the Bexley Library. Joining us now is Richard Cordray, the author of the new book, Watchdog, How Protecting Consumers Can Save Our Families, Our Economy, and Our Democracy. Welcome. Thank you, Nancy. So Watchdog tells the origin story of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, including challenges, victories, and some defeats. So tell us, why was this agency necessary? It was necessary because in the lead up to the financial crisis, which occurred now almost a decade ago and was the worst economic collapse we had suffered in the United States since the Great Depression, it became kind of understood among people in Washington that there was a hole in the system. And that hole was there was nobody looking out for consumers in the financial marketplace. There were plenty of people looking out for banks. There were plenty of people looking out for large financial companies, looking out for their well-being, making sure that they were sound. But nobody was really looking out for consumers and how they can be cheated and mistreated in the marketplace. And it was thought that if we could put something in place to strengthen consumers and protect them, then we could keep ourselves from having the mortgage market collapse as it did in 2008 and breaking the economy. So it wasn't just a matter of protecting individual consumers, although it was that. It was also a matter of, if in the aggregate, that could break the economy and that created all kinds of harm for many innocent people who lost jobs or lost retirement savings. During your six-year tenure with the CFPB, you managed to secure $12 billion in financial relief for 30 million American consumers. So where did the bulk of this come from? Well, it came from... A large number of enforcement actions against banks and financial companies that we found had violated the law in various ways that hurt people, damaged them, cost them money. 
you know, a case in point, one of the most celebrated cases that we brought had to do with Wells Fargo, the big bank, big national bank headquartered in San Francisco that we found had put so much pressure on their employees to open more accounts to make their bonuses that the employees started falsifying what they were doing, opening phony accounts in people's name, misusing their personal information, sometimes misusing their funds so that they could make their goals and make their bonuses and the stock price would continue to rise. But consumers were hurt by that terribly. And the dignitary element of knowing that your money was being manipulated without your consent is just beyond the pale of anything that should happen with banks. That was a $100 million penalty and millions of dollars in relief. And I talk also in the book about another action against Wells Fargo that led to a billion-dollar penalty a couple of years later. Uh, so they obviously weren't reformed by the first problem. But this is just symptomatic of the kinds of problems that can occur in large organizations where a little bit of profit here and there over a huge volume of customers can add up to it lots of lots of money. And people often push the envelope to take advantage uh, of their customers. One of the consistent themes throughout the book is, is the phrase, know before you owe. And I think this became kind of an important slogan for the Bureau in, in a variety of areas, the credit cards, um, home mortgages, auto loans, student, student loans. So did this kind of come to you all at once, or did your staff kind of get to this phrase as you took on various projects? That phrase, I don't really know where it originated, but it came up very early on, and we latched on to it because it encapsulated so much of what we were trying to do. We wanted consumers to be able to know before they owed. We wanted them to be better educated and better informed. We wanted to know that the disclosures given to them about financial products were clear and and more readable and not the kind of dense legalese that we all have become familiar with, page after page of tiny fine print that we can't really understand or wade our way through, but we end up consenting to things and then learning later to our regret uh, that we didn't really want or intend to do that. Uh, no before you owe was actually an interesting phrase that President Obama really liked. He used to talk about it when he would do events around the Consumer Bureau. He loved the fact that people should know before they owe. And as I say in the book, uh, important to know before you owe, because once you owe, uh, you're already in trouble if you aren't clear what choice you made or whether it was the right choice for you. Yeah, exactly. And that brings us to the, the streamlining of credit card agreements. I think in the book you say that in 2008, the average length of these disclosures was more than 30 pages and written at a level that was way above the understanding of most adults. So how widespread did the streamlined agreement become and has it accomplished what you hoped it would? Yeah, so that's a great example. The credit card abuses, which led actually to legislation by Congress, the CARD Act, which curbed a lot of the abuses that were occurring around that time. I was the state treasurer in Ohio at that time, and we used to have women and money seminars around the state. Mm -hmm. And people would tell us what their biggest financial problems were. And again and again, we were hearing about credit cards where late fees were being assessed, you know, unpredictably. Interest rate charges were jumping up in ways that they had not understood would happen. Uh, just all kinds of problems. And one of the problems was these dense agreements that nobody could understand and were designed not to be understood by the customer. So what we wanted to do, the financial industry you know, began by insisting that they simply had to be this long and they had to be this dense and they had to be this complicated. By the way, also many of them are deliberately written at a 14th or 15th grade reading level 
which they know is above the average reading level of the American public, uh, again, making it hard for you to understand and follow along and appreciate the tricks and traps that they're laying for you. We wanted to show that you could actually handle these disclosures in a much more succinct fashion, and we were able to put together a two-page disclosure that really was sufficient. And a lot of the banks now, a lot of the credit card companies are presenting disclosures that are much more readable and that maybe three, four, five pages. Uh, Some of them still have longer disclosures, but many of them are shorter. But we weren't able to mandate that given our situation. So there are still a variety of disclosures, but rarely do you see a 30-page disclosure anymore. And often you see, you know, some of the top credit card companies that offer a lot of credit cards like Capital One or Discover are offering four to five page disclosures that are much more readable today. In the uh, pursuit of other succinct information, I thought the financial aid shopping sheet for prospective college students and their families seems particularly useful. Can you kind of describe what this is, and and is it in fairly wide use today? It is, and in fact, it's in fairly wide use because the White House, President Obama and Vice President Biden, insisted that it be used by any institution that was getting GI Bill benefits on behalf of former service members, veterans who have benefits to pay for further education. So it's thousands of schools that adopted it. Essentially, there's a lot of families, Nancy, that for whom financing a college education is something that comes along once in a lifetime for them, or maybe two or three times, depending on how many children they have. It's a new problem. It's a problem that's hard to understand. Even comparing offers among different schools and which things are grants and which things are loans and how much you're going to owe at the end and how much your monthly payment will be and what that degree is likely to pay off into. These become complex decisions for people that they aren't familiar with and that they don't necessarily know how to make. And we, we weren't trying to make decisions for people. You have to do that in your own circumstances. But clearly, the more you know and the more you can compare apples to apples, the better decision you can make that won't lead to regrets. And that's what we were trying to do for people. Credit reporting is another issue that it, that's really fascinating these days. The reporting seems to be dominated by three companies, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. Previously, consumers really didn't have much input into how their credit history was determined and shared. So did the Bureau really bring about credit score reports that consumers could see and understand? And and if so, what else needs to be done? It's a great question. There are two industries we found, financial industries, credit reporting industry is one, the debt collection industry is another, where consumers are affected greatly by what is done by those companies. But they often, people have very little window into what's happening to them and why, because they don't necessarily sign up to be customers of a debt collector or of a credit reporting company. They The credit reporting companies have information in their files about you. That information becomes very valuable to them. They buy it from banks and other companies. They compile it, aggregate it together, and then they sell it back to those financial companies that they can use in making credit decisions. All of that goes on, and our information is at the heart of it, but we're not really consulted, and we don't really have much mm-hmm. say in it. One of the things that we were trying to do was crack down on those companies to make sure that their information was more accurate, and that if people disputed the information because it was wrong, they could get their disputes resolved and get get them resolved correctly. Uh, That was something that really was not happening when we first started in at the Bureau. The companies were used to being pretty accurate, pretty good 
good enough that the companies would want to buy the information from them, but not good enough that there weren't, you know, millions of files that were wrong, inaccurate, hurting people, either cutting them off from credit or getting them to be charged more for mm -hmm. credit. One of the things we also tried to do was make consumers more aware of the fact that they do have credit files and there are credit scores and credit decisions being made about you every day that you might be out seeking some type of credit. And so we pushed an initiative to make credit scores available on people's credit card bills. You may notice now on your credit card bill, you might see your credit score. There might be a reference to where you can look at your credit score for free. That was something that we pushed hard for. The more people know about this, the more questions they ask, the more inquiries they make, the more they're likely to be able to think more about how to improve their credit. And the companies have to be more responsive. I think there was a really good real person example in your book about the woman whose name was mixed up and she lost her credit rating. That was, I mean, throughout the book, there's a lot of those kind of real life stories. And that, that was really interesting to me. Yes. And by the way, that's a very common problem. Mm -hmm. You think about it, especially among certain ethnic groups, there are very uh -huh. common names and, you know, there you might have 50 people named Gonzalez or Martinez, say in Franklin County. You may have people with huh. the same first and last name. You have people who have lived at the same address. Maybe a father and son might have the very same name, but very different credit backgrounds. Uh, all of those things cause confusion. And these are the kinds of problems that get into these files that the companies need to make much more effort to correct and get right. Mm -hmm. Again, they're making a lot of money off of our information. The least they can do is make sure it it's right. accurate so it's not costing us money. Another one of my big takeaways from the book is how poorly prepared American children are in terms of financial education. Can you talk a little bit about this and how the deficient education affects the American economy? Yeah, I've been preaching on this subject going back to the days when I was a county treasurer here in Franklin County, and I first began to deal with people who were behind on their property taxes, and they could come in and get a payment plan under state law, but we would insist that they walk through their finances and we would help them with budgeting and try to put them on a better path. And what we found was so many people, they have some sort of hard luck or bad break in their life, but it's made so much worse by the fact that they just don't know much about how to manage their finances. Mm -hmm and particularly how to deal with a setback, you know, maybe a period of job loss or a health care problem. These are so common for so many families, and that lightning can strike any given family on any given day of their lives. So one of the things we found was that there's very little financial education being offered in our society. The one thing that young people need to know, regardless of what they do in life, regardless of what their career may be, regardless of where they may go, they're going to have to be able to survive on their own. They're going to have to be able to manage their financial affairs, and they get very little grounding, many of them, in the home, and they get very little grounding in the schools. And so I pushed here in Ohio for mandatory financial education, and we did get a law passed that has a mandate in there for financial education in the schools in Ohio. It's a fairly loose mandate. It's still subject to a lot of interpretation by different school districts around the state. There are some states that are doing more. They are requiring every young student to take financial education. They're requiring testing and standards to be met. And those states, the research is starting to show, are making more of a difference for young people when they get out, fewer delinquencies, better credit scores. And I think that it's just a matter of common sense that if you teach something repetitively over time to young people, they will tend to learn it. That's how our public education system has led to so many Americans being literate now, able to read and numerate, able to do basic mathematics. The same should be true of finance because mm -hmm. you have to have that to survive uh, in life and avoid the the
trauma and the tragedy of bankruptcy and delinquency that follows so many people around. Yeah. So after six years at the Bureau, you are not there any longer, obviously. <laughs> um, I think her name is Kathy Craninger is the current um, Correct. That's right. Current director. And is she keeping consumer interests at the forefront? What's the status of the CFPB now under the Trump administration? Well, obviously, I have my own point of view on that, as you would expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was important for us to be pretty aggressive in protecting consumers because the playing field had been so tilted in favor of financial companies that we were trying to level them, create a balance. Some people probably thought I went too far. I've, I've read and seen where people thought we went too far, but we were trying hard to restore some balance. I would say that the new director who was confirmed by the Senate about a year after I left and has been there for about a little more than a year now is she's an administrator, a manager. She did not have background in consumer finance. She's trying to work through and understand there's a huge number of issues. I mean, as I talk about in my book, it's mortgages, it's credit cards, it's student loans, auto loans, debt collection, credit reporting. Nobody comes to a job like that with a full understanding of all those issues, and it takes time to start mm-hmm. to, to get familiar with them. It was true for me, and I'm sure it's true for her. They have not been as aggressive as we were in enforcing the law and getting money back for people. I think that's regrettable. I think that they should be. Frankly, we talk a lot about putting money in people's pockets, raising the minimum wage, helping people afford their lives. But we don't talk enough about what takes money out of their pocket, Mm -hmm. including fraud and exploitation in many different areas. And so I think aggressive enforcement is needed to protect consumers. I also think that uh, the direction of some of the regulations has gone in the wrong direction. You saw here in Ohio recently, we passed new restrictions on payday lending because it's been such an abusive product for so many consumers. Uh, At the federal level, we passed new restrictions on payday lending as well that I think would have dovetailed with these, and they are looking to roll them back. I I disagree with that. Uh, So I disagree with some some of the things Mm -hmm. they're doing pretty strongly, but on other things, you know, they are continuing some of the work, and the Bureau is clearly here to stay. Even dedicated opponents like uh, Mick Mulvaney have, have acknowledged that, and that's a big victory for consumers. In the years ahead, they'll have this agency there to protect them, sometimes more aggressively, sometimes less so, but always an important component of making sure that they're treated fairly in the marketplace. Oh, that was my next question, whether whether you have any concerns that the Bureau would be disbanded or not continued. I used to. Uh-huh. Uh, when I was the director there, that was a real threat. And there was a point at which, you know, Nancy, the, the president and both houses of Congress were controlled by Republicans who were generally, uh, most of them, foes of the agency or opponents in some some way or other. But they recognized, I think, rightly, that you can't dismantle an agency that looks out for consumers. Who, who are consumers? It's all of us. It's the great middle class in this country that needs somebody to be an ally. This is just such a, such a sensible idea that it's not going to be undone. There is a court case that will be decided this spring having to do with the some of the protections for the director position, and I think the court may well come cut those back a bit, but I don't think that there's any chance that they'll dismantle the agency, and that's not going to happen in Congress either. So then the question becomes, how do you make it work? How do you make it work better? And this book is really a roadmap to what we did. People can learn from that, maybe imitate a lot of it, and at the same time think about uh, some of the problems that I lay out and some of the challenges that are posed. Yeah, yeah. Um, You touched on this earlier, but what are you proudest of, of the accomplishments that you had during your tenure at the Bureau? 
you know, when you say, what are you, me personally, <laughs> proud of, I, I'm, I'm proud of the work that was done by a tremendous group of people at that agency, people very dedicated to public service. And there are many public servants at all levels of government who have that attitude that it's not about me, it's about the people that I'm trying to serve. Of the things that we did there together, the $12 billion we put back in 30 million people's pockets is an important accomplishment. It set a tone for the banks and financial companies that they needed to straighten up and improve what they're doing. Also, the fact that we put $12 billion back in people's pockets means that in the years ahead, people won't be cheated in that way. Uh And the $12 billion will be saved in the years ahead that they otherwise would have been subject to. The other things that we did, we put in place a process to give people a voice and handle their individual complaints. That's really important for people. They just get really frustrated when they just, they run into these brick walls and they don't know where to go and nobody will give them the time of day. And it becomes a dignity thing. Just nobody, nobody's going to bother with your small problem and it just doesn't matter to them. We provided a, a way to handle complaints and we got well over a million complaints during my time there. It's now up over two million wow. for the Bureau and people have plenty to say and it's important to have somebody listening and trying to do something about it. The third thing I'd say is that we put important safeguards in place to protect the mortgage market. Again, that caused the big financial meltdown in 2008 that broke the economy, cost millions of people their jobs who had nothing to do with bad mortgage lending uh, and cost all of us, you know, big chunks of our retirement savings at the time. Some people have made that back. Some people have not. Uh, But we put in place processes that will make sure that the mortgage market never breaks our economy again. That's a very important achievement, even though it's not widely recognized by a lot of people. Yeah. You're going to be on a book tour, I guess. I will be all over the country (laughs) promoting this book, and I thank you for the chance to talk about it today. (laughs) Well, you have a lovely foreword for the book, Watchdog, written by Elizabeth Warren. Is she your presidential? Are you endorsing her for her presidential candidacy? I do. I do. I, I know her well. I worked with her. She's a tough, very smart woman, and she is somebody who would make a terrific president. She has accomplished things. This book describes one of her accomplishments. It was her idea originally to create the Consumer Bureau. It would fell to me on her recommendation to be the one to try to turn it into a reality over years of work. I was glad to have the chance to do that, and I'm grateful to her, and I think that she is a very strong voice for the middle class in this country, and we could certainly not do much better than to have a strong voice for the middle class in charge of our government in Washington. Seems uh, kind of pretty crazy times right now for the Democratic candidates, though, doesn't it? It does. (laughs) It's a pretty muddled crystal ball, and mine is no clearer than anybody else's, I think. So so since um since the um governor election which you lost um you've been writing this book what else have you been doing Well that was my main occupation for the past year I had always hoped that I would have a chance to tell the story of the uh, consumer bureau and how important consumer finance is and how it's uh, revolutionized people's lives really in the last two generations which I talk about a lot in uh, chapters 1 and 2 of the book the voters gave me the time to do that. I wanted to take advantage of that time. And and it was a very different experience. Frankly, Nancy, it's the other end of the human spectrum from running for office where you're out and around and amongst people every day. And that's what that's all about. And then writing a book, which is a very solitary 
pursuit and you're just you're trying to write a story in a way that people will be able when they as solitary individuals read it or listen to it you know take that message and and get the benefit of that story and it was a it was a hard job for me and a hard thing to do I'd never written a book before and it's a big undertaking and I salute all of the authors out there who go through that process it's it's quite something and I'm I'm, I had someone say to me the other day that Dorothy Parker once said that it is she hated to write but she loved having written yeah I'm right now at the having written stage so I I feel better about it that's probably one of the more cleaner Dorothy Parker quotes I've ever heard (laughs) I can I can say that one on your podcast (laughs) and I think uh, you told me that your wife Peggy was one of your first readers and editors for this book she she was it helps to have someone who's willing to be very candid with Mm -hmm. you I had other editors in this process and they were good but I would say that my wife has always given it to me straight and when my prose was flabby as it apparently often is. Uh, she was able to help me cut it down and make it more spare. You told me you thought the book was very readable. I was I was pleased by that because that was the intent to make it accessible to people because, again, this is all of us. Who's a Absolutely. consumer in America? Yeah. Every one of us is a consumer. We all face these challenges with credit cards and student loans and auto loans. And for, I wanted people to be able to understand and get these stories so that they could apply it to their own lives. Yeah, I really did find the book very readable. And it is not my territory of expertise at all, but um, got through it. And it's, it's, it's fascinating. And it's a really good read, I think. I recommend it. So here's the obligatory Jeopardy question. As okay. a former Jeopardy candidate, do you still watch the show? I do. I, I, <laughs> I very much uh, love Alex Trebek, as so many people seem to do. It's been interesting since he you know, has fallen seriously ill. He's had a chance to really hear from his audience around the country, and people really love him. And he's been comfortable in people's living rooms for 35 years. That's quite something. I don't know how many people can really pull that off, but he's managed to do it. That's staying power. Well, thank you so much for talking with us about your book. Is there anything we didn't talk about the book that you would have people know? No, I think you covered it very well. I mean, there's there's a lot in there. As there you is know. a lot. <laughs> uh, but uh, we covered some of the really interesting and important subjects in, in terms of why I wrote the book and what it's about. I think you conveyed it very well here. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with us today and good luck on your book tour. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Life in the 614. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play Music. We hope to have you back next week. Until then, keep enjoying your own life in the 614.